4. Leon Interesting 1. Mr. Geo and Wheeler in his interesting book on Old English Furniture makes a strong case in favor of the Adam Brothers. Classical taste was well established in England by 1765, before the transition from Louis XV to Louis XVI began, and Robert Adam published his book in parallel columns of French and English, which shows it must have been in some demand in France. The great influence of the excavations at Pompeii must naturally not be underestimated, as it was far-reaching, but with the beautiful Adam style well developed, just across the channel. It seems probable that it may have had its share in forming French taste, the foundation being there. The French put their characteristic touch to it and developed a much richer style than that of the Adam brothers, but the two have so much in common that Louis XVI furniture may be put into an Adam room with perfect fitness, and vice versa. As the Adams cared only to design furniture someone else had to carry out the designs, and Chippendale was master carver and cabinet maker under them at Harewood House, Yorkshire and probably was also in many other instances. Illustration, a man with marble and steel in the drawing room. Russian Hall, Northamptonshire the work of the brothers Adam. Illustration, another Adam mantel. It is interesting to note how clearly these mantels are the inspiration of our own colonial work. The early furniture of Adam was plain, and the walls were treated with much decoration that was classic in feeling. He possessed the secret of a composition of which his exquisite decorations on walls and ceilings were made. After 1770 he simplified his walls and elaborated his furniture designs until they met in a beautiful and graceful harmony. He designed furniture to suit the room it was in and with the dainty and charming coloring, the beauty of proportion and the charm of the wall decoration. The scheme had great beauty. Illustration this group of old mirrors indicates the extent to which refinement of design was carried during the Georgian period in England the time of the great cabinet makers. He used the ram's head, wreaths, honeysuckle, mythological subjects, lozenge-shaped, oval and octagonal panels, and many other designs. He was one of the first to use the French idea of decorating furniture with painting and porcelain plaques, and the furniture itself was simple and beautiful in line. The stucco ceilings designed by the brothers were picked out with delicate colors and had much beauty of line. A great deal of the most beautiful atom decoration was the painting on walls and ceilings and furniture by Angelica Kaufman, Zucchai, Pergolazzi, Cipriani, and Colombani. The standard of work was so high that only the best was satisfactory. Adam usually designed his furniture for the room in which it was to stand, and he often planned the house and all its contents, even to the table silver to say nothing of the door locks. The chairs were of mahogany, or painted, or gilded, wood. Some had oval upholstered backs, with the covering specially designed for the room, and some had lyre backs, later used so much by Sheridan, and others had small painted panels placed in the top rail, with beautiful carving. Mirrors were among the most charming articles designed by Adam, and had composition wreaths and cupids and medallions for ornament. They were usually made in pairs in both large and small sizes. A pair of antique mirrors should be kept together, as they are very much more valuable than when separated. Adam was one of the first to assemble the pieces that later grew into the sideboard a table, two pedestals, and a silhouette. There is a sideboard designed by him for gillows, in which the parts are connected, and it is at least one of the ancestors of the beautiful shearer and hathalite ones and our modern full, though not always beautiful. Article 1 Late in his career, Adam attempted to copy the French. He was not so successful, as he did not have their flexibility of temperament, and was unable to give the warmer touch to the classic. 
which they did so well, his paneled walls, however, have great dignity and purity of line and feeling, and the applied ornament was really an ornament, and not a disfigurement as too often happens in our day. With Adam one feels the surety of knowledge and the refinement of good taste led by a high ideal. Illustration, there are many details worthy of notice in this room. The mahogany doors, the paneled walls with the old picture paper, the overmantel, the knife boxes on the sideboard, the hepalite furniture, and the side lights. The chandelier is badly chosen. Hepalite the work of Hepalite and his school lasted from about 1760 to 1795 the last nine years of the time the business was carried on by his widow, Alice, under the name of a Hethelite and Company, for five years after that some work was done after his manner, but it was distinctly inferior, in the early 70s Hethelite's work was so well known and so much admired that its influence was shown in the work of his contemporaries, there was a great difference between his style and that of Chippendale, his being much lighter in construction and effect, besides the many differences of design, Hethelite was strongly influenced by the French style of Louis XVI, and also the pure taste of Robert Adam at its height. Hethelite, however, like all the great cabinet makers, both French and English, was a great genius himself and stamped the impress of his own personality upon his work. Many people date Hethelite's fame from the time of the publication of his book, The Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Guide, in 1788. Not realizing that he had been dead for two years when it appeared, its publication was justified by the well-established popularity of his furniture and the success with which his designs were carried out by a Hethelite and company. It is interesting to notice the difference in the size of chairs which became apparent during Hethelite's time. Hoop skirts and stiffened coats went out of fashion, and with them went the need of large chair seats. The transition chairs made by Hethelite were not very attractive in proportion. As the backs were too low for the width, the transition from Chippendale to Hethelite was not sudden, as the last style of Chippendale was simpler and had more of the classic feeling in it, Hethelite says, in the preface to his book, to unite elegance and utility, and blendful with the agreeable, has ever been considered a difficult, but an honorable task, he sometimes failed and sometimes succeeded, his knowledge of construction enabled him to make his chairs with shield, oval, and heart-shaped backs. The tops were slightly curved, also the tops of the splats, and at the lower edge where the back and the splat join, a half rosette was carved. He often used the three feathers of the Prince of Wales, sheaves of wheat, anthemion, urns, and festoons of drapery, all beautifully carved, and forming the splat. The backs of his chairs were supported at the sides by uprights running into the shield-shaped back and did not touch the seat frame in any other way. With this apparent weakness of construction it is wonderful how many of his chairs have come down to us in perfect condition, but it was his knowledge of combining lightness with strength which made it possible. Hethelite used straight or tapering legs with spade feet for his furniture, often inlaid with bell flowers in satinwood. The legs were sometimes carved with a double OG curve and bead molding. He did not use carving in the lavish manner of Chippendale, but it was always beautifully done, and he used a great deal of inlay of satinwood etc. oval panels, lines, urns, and many other motives common to the other cabinet makers of the day, and also painted some of his furniture. His Japan work was inferior in every way to that of the early part of the 18th century. The upholstery was fastened to the chairs with brass-headed tacks, often in a festoon pattern. Oval-shaped brass handles were used on his bureaus, desks, and other furniture. He made many sideboards, some, in fact, 
going back to the side table and pedestal idea, and bottle cases and knife boxes were put on the ends of the sideboards. His regular sideboards were founded on Shearer's design. Shearer's furniture was simple and dainty in design, and he has the honor of making the first real serpentine sideboard, about 1780, which was not a more or less disconnected collection of tables and pedestals. It was the foreigner of the Hethelite and Sheraton sideboards that we know so well. Shearer is now hardly known even by name to the general world, but without doubt his ideal of lightness and strength in construction had a good deal of influence on his contemporaries and followers. Hethelite was very fond of oval and semicircular shapes, and many of his tables are made in either one way or the other. His sideboards, founded on Shearer's designs, are very elegant, as he liked to say in their simplicity of line, their inlay, and their general beauty of wood, he was most successful in his chairs, sideboards, tables, and small household articles, for his larger pieces of furniture were often too heavy, some of the worst, however, were made by other cabinet makers after his designs, and not by Hethelite himself, Sheridan Thomas Sheridan was born in 1750, and was a journeyman cabinet maker when he went to London, his great genius for furniture design was combined with a love of writing tracts and sermons, and fortunately for his success in life, he had a most disagreeable personality, being conceit, jealous, and perfectly willing to pour scorn on his brother cabinet makers, this impression he quite frankly gives about himself in his books, the name of Robert Adam is not mentioned, and this seems particularly unpleasant when one thinks of the latter's undoubted influence on Sheridan's work. Sheridan's unfortunate disposition probably helped to make his life a failure. It is very sad to see such possibilities as his not reaping their true reward, for poverty dogged his steps all through life, and he was always struggling for a bare livelihood. His books were not financially successful, and at last he gave up his workshop and ceased to make the furniture he designed. He was an expert draftsman and his designs were carried out by the skillful cabinet makers of the day. Adam Black gives a very pitiful account of the poverty in which Sheridan lived, and says, that by attempting to do everything he does nothing, his, nothing, however, has proved a very big something in the years which have followed, for Sheridan is responsible for one of the most beautiful types of furniture the world has known, and although his life was hard and bitter, his fame is great, Sheridan took the style of Louis XVI as his standard, and some of his best work is quite equal to that of the French workman. He felt the lack of the exquisite brass and ormolu work done in France, and said if it were only possible to get as fine in England, the superior cabinet making of the English would put them far ahead in the ranks. To many of us this loss is not so great, for the beauty of the wood counts for more, and is not detracted from by an oversupply of metal ornament, as sometimes happened in France. Enough is as good as a feast. Sheridan, at his best, had beauty, grace and refinement of line without weakness, lightness and yet perfect construction, combined with balance, and the ornament just sufficient to enhance the beauty of the article without overpowering it, it is this fine work which the world remembers and which gave him his fame, and so it is far better to forget his later period when nearly all trace of his former greatness was lost, Sheridan profited by the work of Chippendale, Adam, and Hethelite, for these great men blazed the trail for him, so to speak in raising the art of cabinet making to so high a plane that England was full of skilled workmen. The influence of Adam, Shearer, and Hethelite, was very great on his work, and it is often difficult to tell whether he or Hethelite or Shearer made some pieces, 
He evidently did not have business ability and his better nature hampered him at every turn. The Sheraton School lasted from about 1790 to 1806. He died in 1806, fairly worn out with his struggle for existence. Poor Sheraton. It certainly is a pitiful story. Sheraton's chair backs are rectangular in type, with urn splats, and splats divided into seven radiates, and also many other designs. The chairs were made of mahogany and satinwood, some carved, some inlaid, and some painted. The splat never ran into the seat, but was supported on a cross rail running from side to side a few inches above the seat. The material used for upholstery was nailed over the frame with brass-headed tacks. Bookcases were of mahogany and satinwood veneer, and the large ones were often in three sections, the center section standing farther out than the two sides. The glass was covered with a graceful design in moldings, and the pediments were of various shapes, the swan neck being a favorite. Sideboards were built on very much the lines of those made by Shearer and Hathelite. There were drawers and cupboards for various uses. The knife boxes to put on the top came in sets of two, and sometimes there was a third box. The legs were light and tapering with inlay of satinwood, and sometimes they were reed. There was inlay also on the doors and drawers. There were also sideboards without inlay. The legs for his furniture were at first plain, and then tapering and reed. He used some carving, and a great deal of satinwood and tulip wood were inlaid in the mahogany. He also used rosewood, the bellflower, urn, festoons, and acanthus were all favorites of his for decoration. He made some elaborate and startling designs for beds, but the best-known ones are charming with slender turn posts or reed posts, and often the plain ones were made of painted satinwood. The satinwood from the East Indies was fine and of a beautiful yellow color, while that from the West Indies was coarser in grain and darker in color. It is a slow-growing tree, and that used nowadays cannot compare with the old, in spite of the gallant efforts of the hard-working fakirs to copy its beautiful golden tome. All the cabinet makers of the 18th century made ingenious contrivances in the way of furniture, washstands concealed in what appear to be corner cupboards, a table that looks as simple as a table possibly can, but has a small step ladder and book rest hidden away in its full inside, and many others. Sheraton was especially clever in making these conveniences, as these two examples show, and his books had many others pictured in them. Sheraton's list of articles of furniture is long for he made almost everything from knife boxes to chamber horses, which were contrivances of a saddle and springs for people to take exercise upon at home. Sheridan's drawing book was the best of those he published. It was sold chiefly to other cabinet makers and did not bring in many orders, as Chippendales and Hepplelites did. His other books showed his decline, and his encyclopedia, on which he was working at the time of his death, had many subjects in it beside furniture and cabinet making. His sideboards, card tables, sewing tables, tables of every kind, chairs in fact, everything he made during his best period had a sureness and beauty of line that makes it doubly sad that through the stress of circumstances he should have deserted it for the style of the empire that was then the fashion in France. One or two of his empire designs have beauty, but most of them are too dreadful, but it was the beginning of the end and the 18th century saw the beautiful principles of the 18th century lost in a bog of ugliness. There were many other cabinet makers of merit that space does not allow me to mention, but the great four who stood head and shoulders above them all were Chippendale, Adam, Hepplelite and Sheridan, they, being human, did much work that is best forgotten, but the heights to which they all rose have set a standard for English furniture in beauty and construction that it would be well to keep in mind. 
the 19th century passed away without any especial genius, and in fact, with a very black mark against its name in the hideous early Victorian era, the 20th century is moving along without anything we can really call a beautiful and worthy style being born. There are many working their way towards it, but there is apt to be too much of the bizarre in the attempts to make them satisfactory, and so we turn to the past for our models and are thankful for the legacy of beauty it has left to the world. A general talk when one faces the momentous question of furnishing a house. There are numerous things which must be looked into and thoroughly understood if success is to be assured. If one is building in the country the first question is the placing of the house in regard to the view. But in town there is not much choice. The architect being chosen with due regard to the style of house one wishes. The planning can go merrily on. The architect should be told if there are any especially large and beautiful pieces of furniture or tapestry to be planned for so they shall receive their rightful setting. After all, architects are but human, and cannot tell by intuition what furniture is in storage. It is sad to see how often architecture and decoration are looked upon as two entirely disconnected subjects, instead of being closely allied, playing into each other's hands, as it were, to make a perfect whole. To many people, a room is simply a room to be treated as they wish, whereas many rooms are absolute laws unto themselves and demand a certain kind of treatment, or disaster follows. In America this kind of house is not found so often as in Europe, but the number is growing rapidly as architects and their clients realize more and more the beauties and possibilities of the great periods as applied to the modern house. It is only to the well-trained architect and decorator with correct taste that one may safely turn, for the ill-trained and commonplace still continue to make their astounding errors. And so to have the decoration of a room truly successful one must begin with the architect, for he knows the correct proportions of the different styles and appreciates their importance. He will plan the rooms so that they, when decorated, may complete his work and form a beautiful and convincing whole. This will give the restfulness and beauty that absolute appropriateness always lends. This matter of appropriateness must not be overlooked, and the whole house should express the spirit of the owner. It should be in absolute keeping with his circumstances. There are few houses which naturally demand the treatment of palaces, but there are many which correspond with the smaller chateau of France and the manor houses of England. It is to these we must turn for our inspiration, for they have the beauty of good taste and high standards without the lavishness of royalty, but even royalty did not always live in rooms of state. For at Versailles, and Petty Trianon, there is much simple exquisite furniture. The wonderful and elaborate furniture of the past must be studied of course, but to the majority of people, then as now, the simpler expression of its fundamental lines of beauty are more satisfactory. The trouble with many houses is that their furnishings are copied from two grand models, and the effect in an average modern house is unsuitable in every way. They cannot give the large vistas and appropriate background in color and proportion which are necessary. Beauty does not depend upon magnificence. Illustration the warm tones of a brown Chinese wallpaper are attractive with the mahogany furniture, and the pattern is prevented from becoming monotonous by the strong rectangular lines of the ivory woodwork which frames it. The corner cupboard and the exceptionally fine dining table and the variety of chairs are interesting. If one has to live in a house planned and built by others one often has to give up some long-cherished scheme and adopt something else more sweet to the surroundings. For instance, the rooms of the great French periods were high and often the modern house has very low ceilings, that would not allow space for the cornice, over doors and correctly proportioned paneling, that are marked features of those times. Mrs. Wharton has aptly said, 
Proportion is the good breeding of architecture, and one might add that proportion is good breeding itself. One little slip from the narrow path into false proportion in line or color or mass and the perfection of effect is gone. Proportion is another word for the fitness of things, and that little phrase, the fitness of things, is what Alice in Wonderland calls a portmanteau phrase, for it holds so much, and one must feel it strongly to escape the pitfalls of period furnishing. Most amazing things are done with perfect complacency, but although the French and English kings who gave their names to the various periods were far from models of virtue, they certainly deserve no such cruel punishment as to have some of the modern rooms, such as we had all seen, called after them. The best decorators refuse to mix styles in one room and they thus save people from many mistakes, but a decorator without a thorough understanding of the subject, often leads one to disaster. A case in point is an apartment where a small Louis XV room opens on a narrow hall of nondescript modern style, with a wide archway opening into a mission dining room. As one sits in the midst of pink brocade and gilding and looks across to the dining room, fitted out in all the heavy paraphernalia of mission furniture, one's head fairly reels. No contrast could be more marked or more unsuitable. And yet this is by no means an uncommon case. If one intends to adopt a style in decorating one's house, There should be a uniformity of treatment in all connecting rooms, and there must be harmony in the furniture and architecture and ornament, as well as harmony in the color scheme. The foundation must be right before the decoration is added. The proportion of doors and windows, for instance, is very important. With the decorated overdoor reaching to the ceiling, the overdoors and mantles were architectural features of the rooms, and it was not until wallpapers came into common use in the early part of the 19th century, that these decorative features slowly died out. The mantel and fireplace should be a center of interest and should be balanced with something of importance on the other side of the room, either architectural or decorative. It was this regard for symmetry, balance, proportion, and harmony, which made the old rooms so satisfying, there was no magic about it. It was artistic common sense. The use for which a room is intended must be kept in view and carried out with real understanding of its needs. The individuality of the owner is of course a factor. Unfortunately the word individuality is often confounded with eccentricity and to many people it means putting perfectly worthy and in assuming articles to startling uses. By individuality one should really mean the best expression of one's sense of beauty and the fitness of things. And when it is guided by the laws of harmony and proportion the result is usually one of great charm convenience, and comfort. These qualities must be in every successful house, in furnishing any house, whether in some special period or not. There are certain things which must be taken into account. One of these is the general color scheme. Arranging a color scheme for a house is not such a difficult matter as many people suppose, nor is it the simple thing that many others seem to think. There is a happy land between the two extremes, and the guideposts wanting to it are a good color sense a true feeling for the proportion and harmony of color, and an understanding of the laws of light. The trouble is that people often do not use their eyes, red is red to them, blue is blue, and green is green. They had never appeared to notice that there are dozens of tones in these colors. Nature is one of the greatest teachers of color harmony if we would but learn from her. Look at a salt marsh on an autumn day and notice the wonderful browns and yellows and golds in it, the reds and russets and touches of green in the woods on its edge and the clear blue sky overall with the reflections in the little pools. It is a picture of such splendor of color that one fairly gasps. Then look at the same marsh under gray skies and see the change, there is just as much beauty as before. 
the same russets and golds and reds, but exquisitely softened, one is sparkling, gay, a harmony of brilliancy, the other is more gentle, sweet and appealing, a harmony of softened glory, again, nature makes a thousand and one shades of green leaves to harmonize with her flowers, the yellow green of the golden rod, the silver green of the milkweed, the bright green of the nasturtium, notice the woods in winter time with the wonderful purple browns and grays of the tree trunks and branches, the bronze and russet of the dead leaves, and the deep shadows in the snow, everywhere one turns there are lessons to learn if one will only use seeing eyes and a thinking mind, a house should be looked at as a whole, not as so many units to be treated in a carefree manner, a room is affected by all the rooms opening from it, as they, in turn, are affected by it, there can be variety of color with harmony of contrast, or there can be the same color used throughout, with the variety gained by the use of its different tones, the plan of each floor should be carefully studied to get the vistas in all directions so that harmony may reign and there will be no danger of a clashing color discord when a door is opened, the connecting rooms need not be all in one color, of course, but they should form a perfect color harmony one with another, with deft touches of contrast to accent and bring out the beauty of the whole scheme, this matter of harmony in contrast is an important one, the idea of using a predominant color is a restful one, and adds dignity and apparent size to a house. The walls, for instance, could be paneled in white enameled wood, or plaster, and the necessary color and variety could be supplied by the rugs, hangings, furniture, and pictures. Another charming plan is to have different tones of one color used a scheme running from cream or old ivory through soft yellow and tan to a russet brown would be lovely especially if the house did not have an oversupply of light. Greens may be used with discretion, and a cool and attractive scheme is from white to soft blue through gray. If different colors are to be used in the different rooms the number of combinations is almost unlimited, but there must always be the restraining influence of a good color sense in forming the scheme or the result will be disappointing, to say the least. A very important matter in the use of color is in its relation to the amount and quality of the light. Dreary rooms can be made cheerful, and to bright and dazzling rooms can be softened in effect, by the skillful use of color, the warm colors, cream white, yellows but not lemon yellow orange, warm tans, russet, pinks, yellow greens, yellowish reds are to be used on the north or shady side of the house, the cool colors, white, cream white, blues, grays, greens, and violet, are for the sunny side, endless combinations may be made of these colors and if a gray room, for example, is wished on the north side of the house, it can be used by first choosing a warm tone of gray and combining with it one of the warm colors, such as certain shades of soft pink or yellow, we can stand more brilliancy of color out of doors than we can in the house, where it is shut in with us, it is too exciting and we become restless and nervous, no matter on what scale a house is furnished one of its aims should be to be restful. There is one great mistake which many people make of thinking of red as a cheerful color, and one which is good to use in a dark room. The average red used in large quantities absorbs the light in a most disheartening manner. Making a room seem smaller than it really is, it makes ugly gloomy shadows in the corners, for at night it seems to turn to a dingy black, and increases the electric light bill. Red is also a severe strain on the eyes, and many a red living room is the cause of seemingly unaccountable headaches. I do not mean to say that red should never be used, for it is often a very necessary color, but it must be used with the greatest discretion, and one must remember that a little of it goes a long way. A room, for instance, paneled with oak, 
with an oriental rug with soft red in it, red hangings, and a touch of red in an old stained glass panel in the window, and red velvet cushions on the window seat, would have much more warmth and charm than if the walls were covered entirely with red. One red cushion is often enough to give the required note. The effect of color is very strong upon people, although a great many do not realize it, but nearly everyone will remember a sudden and apparently unexplained change of mood in going into some room. One can learn a deal by analyzing one's own sensations. Figured wallpapers should also be chosen with the greatest care for the same reason. Papers which have perpetual motion in their design, or eyes which seem to peer, or an unstable pattern of gold running over it, must all be ignored. People who choose this kind of paper are blessed, or cursed, whichever way one looks at it. By another lack of imagination, a room is divided into three parts, the floor, the walls, and the ceiling and the color of the room naturally follows the law of nature, the heaviest or darkest at the bottom, or floor, the medium tone in the center, or walls, and the lightest at the top, or ceiling. It is only when one has to artificially correct the architectural proportions of a room that the ceiling should be as dark, or darker, than the walls. A ceiling can also be seemingly lowered by bringing the ceiling color down on the side walls. A low room should never have a dark ceiling, as it makes the room seem lower. Walls should be treated as a background or as a decoration in themselves. In the latter case any pictures should be set in specially arranged panels and should be pictures of importance, or fresco painting. The walls of the great periods were of this decorative order. They were treated architecturally and the feeling of absolute support which they gave was most satisfactory. The pilasters ran from base or dado to the cornice and the overdoors made the doors a dignified part of the scheme rather than nearful holes in the wall as they too often are nowadays. Paneling is one of the most beautiful methods of wall decoration. There are many styles of paneling, 